Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I am Amy Gunn, and today I am joined by Elizabeth McNulty, Megan Crow, and Liz Lenevy. Today we are talking about bankruptcy. And we're going to start with a recent decision out of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals involving Johnson & Johnson and a subsidiary that it created called LTL Management LLC. So this case starts a number of years ago when it was discovered that talc or baby powder caused ovarian cancer because there is some asbestos that has been found and some mesothelioma cases as well. And once that kind of got out there, thousands of cases were filed to the tune of about 38, 39, 40,000 filed in federal court and various states court, including here in the city of St. Louis. And after a number of cases were tried and some lost and some won, particularly the city of St. Louis case, where the verdict was against Johnson & Johnson for about $4.6 billion. And in the summer of 2021, After settlement negotiations broke down, Johnson & Johnson underwent what's now been known as the Texas Two-Step, where it created a new company called LTL Management LLC and placed all of the talc liabilities in that company and then created another new company called, quote, New Consumer, in which all profitable business enterprises remained. So those companies were done under the Texas two-step, but the litigation, the bankruptcy litigation was actually filed in the Western District of North Carolina. So let me back up just a little bit. So talc began being sold by Johnson & Johnson in 1894, I know quite a long time ago. But then in 1979, Johnson & Johnson transferred all the baby powder assets to a company called J&J Baby Products. And eventually that business became known as, quote, old consumer. So if anybody wants to read the actual opinion, which I recommend, it's 56 pages of fun, you will see that old consumer is referenced and then the two new companies, new consumer, which is the good company and LTL management, which is the bad company with all the liabilities. So they filed for bankruptcy just a few days after those companies were created. And the Western District of North Carolina bankruptcy judge transferred the case to the District of New Jersey. There was a trial in that court for about five days. And an opinion came out from the district court bankruptcy judge indicating that yeah, sure, this can go forward. Essentially, the analysis is, because there's a Chapter 11 filing, the analysis is, is the bankrupt company, in this case, LTL management, is it in financial distress? And if the company is truly in financial distress, then that is considered a good faith filing. So I know I'm simplifying this, but it's an important issue because we've seen almost a repeat of this at least in the 3M military earplug litigation, not exactly the same, but a similar idea where the company, not the main company, not 3M filing for bankruptcy, but a subsidiary or another company filing for bankruptcy and trying to put all the liabilities in that company 
And that leaves all of the claimants in these litigations under an automatic stay. Once a company files for bankruptcy, no matter how many cases are pending in how many jurisdictions, there is an automatic stay that is imposed, and it's very hard to get that lifted until you have a conclusion of the bankruptcy issue. And the whole point of the bankruptcy filing was to stop all that litigation and to establish a fund out of which all of the claimants will be paid, which sounds good until you find out that the fund only has enough money to pay people what, 10 grand each or something like that. So it's not justice. That is not what is contemplated if the company truly is not bankrupt. And that's what happened here. So as I said, the trial court, the bankruptcy judge went through this analysis and said, you know, LTL Management LLC, with all these liabilities, they really are in financial harm, financial risk, financial distress. But the circuit court said, well, hang on, wait a minute, because what we really know about this company, based on the filings of Johnson & Johnson, is that there's a financial backstop. So LTL got about $6 million in cash and about $367 million in royalty sharing from a product. But it also got a funding agreement from, quote, new consumer. And then, of course, Johnson & Johnson is the parent. In that funding agreement, there was no obligation to repay. So if you've got a company that can go to a parent and say, I need money, and there are no restrictions to how much money the parent is ever going to give the subsidiary. And there's no reason that the subsidiary would ever have to repay the parent. That subsidiary is not in financial distress. And because LTL management had that backstop of, I don't know, $61.5 billion, which I believe was the value of new consumer it's really hard to say that LTL management was not in financial distress. The court found that it was not a good faith filing and rejected it, lifted the stay, and boom, we're back in business. It was an interesting opinion because the Third Circuit said, look, the district court looked at these doomsday scenarios. Like, well, look, there was this multi-billion dollar verdict in the city of St. Louis. Of course, that was cut down by a Supreme Court. But there are 38,000 of these cases pending, and if each case, even though the one in the city of St. Louis had, I think, 20 plaintiffs, if each one is a billion-dollar verdict, then, you know, you can do the math. I can't do the math, but somebody can do the math. It's a lot of money. And the circuit court said, you know what, that's a little much. That's a little speculative, because what we really know from the facts of this case is that there have been 15 completed ovarian cancer cases and only Ingham resulted in any kind of payout. Now, it was a $2 billion payout, but only one has actually resulted in a payout because the rest were reversed on appeal. And Johnson & Johnson, in its filings, only put its liability for the next two years for the talc at $2.4 billion. So its own information that was found in the SEC filings basically militated against there being financial distress possibilities for old consumer or much less LTL management. So that was really the analysis that the circuit court engaged in. And it said, look, these cases can settle. 
and there was kind of a wink and a nod, like, let's get on this, people. We're giving you an opportunity to get these cases settled. You might want to think about it. And it was very satisfying, just the idea, and I know we're all plaintiff's attorneys, but just the idea that you've got legitimate litigation, legitimate injuries for folks, and a company can just create another company, put it in bankruptcy, and that's the end of it? And it's just nice to know that the Circuit Court of Appeals looked at it objectively like that and said, yeah, no, we're not doing it. I don't think it's just a plaintiff's lawyer thing, though. I think that everyone can appreciate being against sneaky, underhanded sort of contractual business arrangements to get out of things. And even the court noted that Johnson & Johnson's stated goal for LTL management was to isolate the talc liabilities in a new subsidiary so that new subsidiary could file for bankruptcy without the old consumer filing for bankruptcy so the old consumer can continue to make a ton of money. And I'm thinking, okay, I mean, at least they were honest, I guess, about the whole purpose of it. They weren't really shying away from that. So before the bankruptcy, old consumer had paid about $3.5 billion between settlements and mainly that Ingham verdict and $1 billion in defense costs. $1 billion in defense costs. So maybe we should switch sides. I don't know. <laughs> that's, pretty, that's a lot. This opinion just kind of gives me a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling. I mean, obviously, like you said, we are plaintiff's lawyers, so we are biased. But at the same time, I think the majority of people, including non-lawyers, would agree it's kind of nice to see a multi-billion corporation not be able to game the system, right? which oftentimes feels like it is designed to work on their behalf. It is designed by them, for them, so that they can take advantage of it to the detriment of regular folks. And in this situation, women who have been harmed sometimes who have lost their lives because of it. So that feels really good. My second thought is, and maybe this is a silly question, and it just sort of goes to my ignorance around bankruptcy, which we were joking before we started recording this podcast, that the kind of work we do, I know very little about bankruptcy. The majority of my knowledge of bankruptcy is when a client mentions it to me, I say, wow, it sounds like you should call a bankruptcy lawyer. Let me help you find one. (laughs) But you mentioned a trial in the district court when they were trying to see if this was a good faith filing. I understand that there's going to be, you know, Johnson and Johnson or LTL management or new consumer or old consumers lawyers. I guess it would be LTL management's lawyers. Who's trying the case against them? Who's saying that this is not a good faith filing? Is it the plaintiff's lawyers? Do the plaintiff's lawyers hire their own lawyers? Who represents yeah, them? Yeah, that's a good question. And the 56-page opinion, the first 16 pages were appearances of law firms and other debtors to this litigation. I didn't print out the first 16 pages. Rest assured that it was a lot of law firms involved in the talc litigation who, quite honestly, are debtors, particularly ones that have put a lot of time and effort into getting these cases to where they are. So the analysis, though, was really an abuse of discretion by the circuit court of the trial court's decision. And that was, again, largely based on the idea that LTL was not in financial distress. The district court undertook as I said, these doomsday calculations, if 38,000 times this equals all this, which is a terrible huge amount of money and could put Johnson & Johnson at risk. But the circuit court said, look, the casualness of these calculations, almost 
back of the envelope calculations by the district court judge really was not based in an actual fact. It was worst case scenario because Johnson and Johnson, as I said, had valued the liabilities of that talc litigation over the next 24 months or two years at $2.4 billion and believed that between four and $5 billion like total was in the ballpark for what their total liabilities were going to be. Now, they weren't going to fund to that extent or not going to say exactly what they were going to put in that fund. But just the idea that the defendant, who in this case is the tortfeasor, is the bad guy, so to speak, gets to decide unilaterally what all the rest of the cases are worth is what was rejected especially when the court called it that this backstop, this financial agreement that was between LTL and New Consumer and ultimately Johnson & Johnson was an ATM disguised as a contract because at no point was LTL actually in financial distress because they had this ATM that was going to shoot out whatever I guess it needed to. I have a question about that, which may reveal my ignorance as to bankruptcy again, but it seems to me that this lending agreement was sort of the smoking gun of the case and really the crux of the reasoning. So naturally, what comes to my head is that do you think that in the future, maybe companies will wisen up and sort of contract around that and this won't really apply anymore? So you're so good, Megan. Here's a paragraph on the second to last page of the opinion. We do not duck an apparent irony that J&J's AAA-rated payment obligation for LTL's liabilities, which it views as a generous protection it was never required to provide to the claimants, weakened LTL's case to be in bankruptcy. Put another way, the bigger a backstop a parent company provides a subsidiary, the less fit that subsidiary is to file. But when the backstop provides ample financial support to a debtor who then seeks shelter in a system designed to protect those without it, we see this perceived incongruity dispelled. So the court sees the irony of, you know, you're trying to do the right thing, having a lot of money available to this bankrupt subsidiary. But while you do that and you're trying to look like you're doing it in good faith, just the opposite is true. But to your point, I think more specifically, Megan, what's to say the next time this happens, they just don't put everything in bankruptcy and walk away? People smarter than me have probably already thought about that and read this opinion with that exact worry. I guess I could say I don't know at this point, other than there really does still have to be a good faith reason to file bankruptcy. And I don't know that just because you spin off your liabilities into a new brand new company doesn't mean that the old company isn't still on the hook for it. So that is similar to the 3M litigation that's going on. There was a company called Arrow that actually manufactured the earplugs before 3M came in and bought Arrow. And so the company that was put into bankruptcy was Arrow. And 3M says, you know, oh, automatic stay, Arrow is in bankruptcy. But at no point in the MDL, after several years of litigation, did 3M raise the issue that it was not responsible for these cases because we sued 3M and Arrow. And then all of a sudden, after Arrow files for bankruptcy, 3M says, hey, it's Arrow's problem. It's not our problem. 3M isn't the bad guy here. It's Arrow, and they're in bankruptcy, so sorry about your luck. And the district court judge in that MDL 
was really bothered by that because at no point in time did 3M raise that issue during the course of the first numerous numbers of trials. And you can't really do it later. So to answer your question, Megan, if the company that gets sued does have responsibility for the product, either as the manufacturer or has indemnity issues or whatever it is, they're still going to be on the hook for it. I think that's the traditional way to go. It's just with Talc and J&J just trying to think of this new way to completely control how these cases resolve has been exposed. So, interesting. I think people feel good today. Maybe not. I mean, I'm sure something else, there'll be another twist, another turn. Well, is it going to get appealed further? Yeah, that was my question. Well, sure. So, you know, there's one more layer, y'all, of course, above the Federal Court of Appeals, and that is our Supreme Court. I am not aware, this is only a few days old at this moment, so I'm not aware if cert has been requested. I would assume that it will be requested. Of course, the Supreme Court is a court of limited jurisdiction, so it does not have to accept this appeal. So we'll see if they're interested in it. So, But it got me thinking about bankruptcy in our everyday practice. And I have known over the years bankruptcy, both in terms of a defendant filing for bankruptcy, but also as a plaintiff or client filing for bankruptcy. And it causes all sorts of problems for the litigation. Liz, have you had any of those A couple of years ago, we had a case where a medical malpractice insurance company had to file for bankruptcy. And we may have been local counsel, you and I, Amy, on a case where the defendant doctor had this insurance company. And we basically got an email from the defense attorney saying the litigation has to stop. There's this insurance issue right now with bankruptcy. And so it just put a pause on everything in the case. I think another attorney in our office had something similar happen in a trucking case where he was about to take the defendant driver's deposition on like a Friday. And on Tuesday, he gets an email saying the insurance company has just filed for bankruptcy. So the deposition's off on Friday and I don't know when we can resume. And so that's a really scary thought is you're working up a case, you're putting in time, effort, money. Your client is waiting on it. Assuming that your client is really hurt, they could be waiting on you know either a settlement or a verdict to supplement their income. And that's a really scary thought that because of an insurance company going under, Because it's not just the business going under. It's the person with the checkbook at the end of the day. Them going under, that could completely pause your litigation. And who knows when it's going to be able to resume or who knows if you're ever going to be able to get anything out of it. Elizabeth, I know that you've had a similar experience. So maybe you could talk about what you learned in that. Yeah. So I handled a case and I think a few other lawyers in our office. And I know that other attorneys in the area had med mal cases where the doctors were insured by an insurance company that was being put into liquidation, which is a different word for bankruptcy, basically, because insurance is regulated by the state. So in an effort for this not to happen, you know, lots of companies file for bankruptcy, but insurance is kind of special in a way the state has an interest for it to not want to become insolvent because it puts everyone at a lot of risk, especially, you know, you're buying a product that the insurance company can no longer protect you from liability and shield you from that, but you've paid for it. So it's certainly a concern for everyone when an insurance company becomes insolvent. So states have entities generally created by statute 
statutes that kind of take over for the insurance company if they become liquidated through a court order. They're guarantee associations generally, and Missouri has one. I think they're in every state. And what happens is they will intervene in your case if it's already been filed and put a stay on the proceedings and do discovery to see if your client's claims are even covered by kind of their jurisdiction, which is exactly what happened in our case. It's nice that the state has put in these entities to exist because they do cover the liability for the defendants, their insureds, but they're not going to pay out maybe what would have happened. So there's more of a concern there of taking a case to a jury when in Missouri, it's called MEGA, the Missouri Property and Casualty Insurance Guarantee Association, if they're not going to be able to cover an entire judgment. So it certainly increases the incentive to settle those cases. It's kind of just an extra headache. And, you know, it's really unfortunate for our clients when it does happen because not only have they been wronged by someone, but they've been wronged by someone who purchased insurance of a company who, you know, went under. So it's just like a really unfortunate series of events, if you will. But, you know, at least it's there and our clients aren't left like completely without any kind of resolution, which I think is nice. But it's a scary thing, I think, when insurance companies go bankrupt because it means a lot of people did a pretty bad job at assessing risk. Elizabeth, I don't know what it may have been in your case, but I know in the case that Amy and I had several years ago, the Missouri Property and Casualty Insurance Guarantee Association, when I looked, you know, was trying to do some research to figure out what we were going to do, they kept their payments at $300,000, which if I'm remembering this case correctly, this woman had far in excess of $300,000 worth of damage. And she had some pretty serious medical bills, what we considered to be lifelong injuries. So it's really unfortunate that, like you said, you've already been hurt and now it feels like you're getting screwed over twice. But, you know, it's something that you have to be aware of because even though there's not enough money there, you at least want to try to get something for your client. And in this case, you had up until a certain day to file a claim. So in those situations, I also wonder what happens then. Let's say you get injured. Your case is not on file yet, but the statute of limitations won't run until after the end of this claim date. You know, if you end up filing against this doctor who you don't realize their insurance company has gone under, but they would have otherwise been covered by that insurance company for your injury, and then that claim date has already passed are you just completely out of luck in that situation? And I, and I guess the answer has to be yes, because in that situation, the Missouri Property and Casualty Insurance Guarantee Association, they're not going to pay it out if the claim date is passed, unless I'm wrong. You're looking at me like I'm wrong. I just assume the doctor would have had notice at that point and would have to get insurance through a different carrier because he wouldn't be insured or he would be exposed personally. If you're the insured, it's not like you don't know that your insurance company has gone under. They put you on notice and they're either saying, we'll pay out claims, you're not covered. And then it's on you to go get insurance. Mm -hmm. You know, doctors practicing without liability insurance. Is that a thing? I don't know. I think it could be. But to a certain extent, my response is, I don't care. You're still good for this. You're still a doctor with a practice. I'm going to sue you. I'm going to sue your practice. Presumably you make some money. It's always just makes our job a lot easier, I guess, to actually collect if there is an insurance policy that is obligated to pay if there's a verdict. But honestly, I mean, anytime you file suit against anybody, you're not sure initially how much insurance there is or if there is insurance. And so that's what's interesting about the insurance company filing for bankruptcy. What do I care? 
I sued the doctor. I didn't sue the insurance company. I think that was the case in this situation. Yeah. It was a rural doctor with like a solo practice, wasn't connected to a hospital or some big practice group. And so I think that was a big concern was that there wasn't money. Especially if there's multiple claims. Right. And oftentimes companies are protected as corporations or LLCs and there isn't other than ongoing concern, like you're continuing to practice medicine, there might not be a whole bunch of money sitting there. So I, I understand why in that situation, if you'd want to wait and see what it gets you. But it is incredibly unfair, I guess is the word I would use. It seems to me like this could be a good opportunity to use something like a tort victims compensation fund. Sure. A good situation in which to do that, which, if I'm not mistaken, Full Circle in Missouri is pretty well funded now because of these stock verdicts. <laughs> do you see what just happened? You did. You brought it right about around. Yeah, it has millions of dollars because in Missouri, the talc verdict that got reduced down to, I think, $2.4 billion, a large amount of that was punitive damage punitive damages in Missouri, half of which have to go to this tort victims fund. And so it is flush right now. And that certainly is something that you can sometimes count on, but not really up to this talc verdict. I mean, for as long as I know, there's barely been any money in it ever. And so now I think there are a lot of people filing a bunch of claims but it also has limits. I think the top, what is it, 300 grand is the most you can ever get? 300,000 is the most you'll ever get. And then there are certain limitations. Like you said, Amy, I had never heard of this before. No one ever talked about it. And then all this money went in there. In the last six months, I filed two of these to try yeah. to get some for some clients who were unfortunately hurt by defendants that didn't have enough insurance and didn't have any assets. Exactly. So we've talked about that when defendants or defendants insurance companies have filed for bankruptcy. And one of the things, just talking about the defendants one more time, if a defendant does file for bankruptcy in that person's own name or if it's a business, there is an automatic stay. You can have that if we're not talking about the insurance company, just straight up talking about the business. You can have that stay lifted to the extent of the insurance. So if there's a million-dollar policy that covers ABC Manufacturing Company and you've got a case against ABC Manufacturing Company and ABC Manufacturing Company's files for bankruptcy, there will be an automatic stay in your state court case. You can go to the bankruptcy court and ask for that stay to be lifted to the extent of the insurance. And then you just proceed forward against the case. And if you win, obviously, you can only get to the extent of the insurance coverage, which is sort of unfortunately the way we live anyway. So what about, though, if a plaintiff, one of our clients, files for bankruptcy? Have you ever had that happen? Yes, I've had that happen where the client had filed for bankruptcy prior to retaining us as counsel. And I've also had a situation where the client needed to file for bankruptcy during the pendency of the litigation. And it's a different situation for both. But bankruptcy, just it just scares me. It's a really scary thing, and it's something that I work into every initial conversation I have with a potential client. Before I even tell them that I'm accepting their case, when I'm just walking through the terms of our contract, I explicitly explain the importance of talking to me about bankruptcy. And I ask them, are you in bankruptcy right now? Have you ever filed for bankruptcy? Who was your bankruptcy lawyer? Are you sure your bankruptcy is done? And if it's a situation where... You know, they haven't filed for bankruptcy, but it they may need to in the future. I say before you file for bankruptcy, you need to talk to me. Right. We have to talk about it because under the bankruptcy rules, 
any litigation you have is considered an asset. And so it's really important that we talk about it, that we work this out with your bankruptcy lawyer. I'm not going to give you any bankruptcy advice, but I need to be kept aware every step of the way to make sure we don't screw this up. Because their trustee actually is the person who would become the plaintiff in cases. And if you don't get the trustee on board with the claim, then it can just be like a real nightmare is my understanding. I've never dealt with it, but I was forewarned in bankruptcy in law school about it. And that was the only thing I retained. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I have when we were, again, getting ready for this episode, I went back and I looked through my inbox for, you know, anytime I've talked to bankruptcy lawyers. And I try to take really detailed notes. And something interesting a bankruptcy lawyer told me, and I really hope it's true, otherwise, I don't know, I guess I'm getting bad information, was that whether or not the trustee for the estate becomes the plaintiff. It depends on the type of bankruptcy they file and also what stage of the litigation they're in. So in one situation I'm thinking of, we were really close to trial and we were really close to a mediation, which in this particular case, the case settled at the mediation. And I had spoken to the bankruptcy lawyer and this woman explained to me, look, the kind of bankruptcy that the plaintiff in this case is filing, she may not be able to serve as the plaintiff. It may have to be the trustee for the estate. But oftentimes, and again, this is just what I've learned in this phone call, oftentimes they won't step in if it's really close to resolving. At which point I said, well, is it at all possible that we can delay the bankruptcy so that we can just try to resolve this? Because it's going to trial. Like, we're going to have a resolution pretty quickly. And that's what we ended up doing was we delayed the bankruptcy filings until we resolved the case. And and that sort of got around that issue. Another case where we had a client who had filed for bankruptcy years and years and years prior, he had made the mistake. Well, I think partially when we had talked to him about it, I think he thought it had already resolved. He was pretty convinced that it had already resolved. But we, you know, told him, well, why don't you, you know, make sure you talk to your lawyer. And he was a really nice guy, but I just don't think he communicated it well to the bankruptcy lawyer. So there was an issue about whether or not he had properly updated the bankruptcy court. Luckily, it was another situation where just the facts of the case, it wasn't a big deal. We got it handled. But it just really highlights the importance of making sure you have those detailed conversations with clients, that clients understand what their responsibilities are and are office, we write that into the contract about what is a client's obligation. And part of the client's obligation is to update us and make sure that we have a full understanding of what is going on as far as their financials with bankruptcy, whether they have filed, whether they're preparing to file, anything like that. And I think that got added to the contract after some bad situations that you've mentioned where all of a sudden you find out not from your own client, but from other sources that there's a bankruptcy. I just don't think there's anybody who would believe that you've got this potential asset of your bankruptcy estate in the form of a lawsuit that hasn't maybe even been filed yet. And that is something you're supposed to report to your bankruptcy lawyer. Now, if you look at all the schedules that you have to fill out, there are specific questions. And I don't think most people fail to inform their bankruptcy trustee on purpose. I think it's just not very clear. And if the trustee or your lawyer who's helping you file bankruptcy doesn't explain it fully. I can see where it'd get missed. I had a case a number of years ago after the lawsuit was filed, my client filed for bankruptcy and on those schedules failed to accurately reflect the lawsuit. 
it came up later because the defendant filed a motion for judicial estoppel, which I'm still not clear exactly what that means. Oh, <laughs> go well, ahead. the only reason I I just had a crash course in judicial estoppel because it came up in a pretrial we had where the defendant <laughs> the defendant filed a motion in limine for judicial estoppel. And I remember thinking, for what? I've been practicing for seven years. I've never seen this before. But judicial estoppel, what it means is asking the court to basically make a ruling that will dismiss or and then in this case, they were trying to limit certain evidence from coming in because the allegation was that the party, in this case, our client, had taken inconsistent positions in two judicial or, you know, formal governmental filings. This particular case did not involve bankruptcy, but there can be motions for judicial estoppel in bankruptcy cases because of an inconsistent statement as far as what your assets are. So that's what this was. Thank you for reminding me. This was the defendant filing a motion, I guess, to dismiss based on judicial estoppel of her civil case because they had run her name, found the bankruptcy filing, not only found the filing, but all of the paperwork that was filed and the recording of the hearing that you have to go through right before bankruptcy is granted. And in that recording, the question was, they follow those schedules, and the question was, do you have any lawsuits? And she said no. And I was like, God, this is kind of hard to argue against. And so it was granted. She was very upset about it, which I can understand. And that's another reason why I was like, all right, I don't know. Did she lie? Did she forget? I don't know. I'm not here to say that. But I did learn never not to bring it up again with my clients. Look, and I say the same thing. Have you filed? When was it? What chapter? Blah, blah, blah. And look, if you find yourself in a position, which some of our clients do based on medical bills they can't pay, they're not working, whatever it is, if you find yourself in a position where you want to file bankruptcy, you just have to talk to me first, like you said, Liz, because I can do a better job explaining what happens. We can maybe figure out a better way to get those bills paid in the meantime, but you will no longer be my client. The trustee of your estate will be my client. And if we are able to win anything in this lawsuit, it goes to the estate. You might get some of it. You might not. Your creditors might get all of it. And so that usually stops them from going through with it. But it just raises all kinds of issues because then my contract for the case is with my client. And that's no longer valid if she's in bankruptcy. So then in order for me to pursue the case, I need a client. So the bankruptcy trustee has to hire. So we have to sign a new contract. And then if we do settle the case or win the case and get our verdict paid, it has to be run through the bankruptcy court. And the bankruptcy court, even though I've got a contract, the bankruptcy court still has to approve my fees and expenses. So it just it adds an extra layer of difficulty to any case. And so that's why we try real hard to get ahead of it. One last thing I'll add on this topic of judicial estoppel, because it started making me real nervous when I started reading up on it more. 
about what well, when is it an inconsistent statement? I'll say in the situation that you and I had recently where it was at a pretrial, the court saw it our way. But the thing that you have to be careful of, I think, in the bankruptcy context is you have to make sure you have the timing down, Pat. And when I was doing a little bit of research on on what bankruptcy courts have ruled as far as this topic goes, they really try to figure out what is the timeline. When did you know your injury and when did you know you would be filing a lawsuit and where did the bankruptcy fall in that scheme? Because it seems like if you can try to prove or if you can try to present some evidence that the client had a reason to doubt that they had this injury or a reason to know or have the knowledge that they could go forward with this, I think that the court can be a little bit more flexible. And and something that I learned when I was doing that research on judicial estoppel, at least in the state of Missouri, is that courts here do seem to take into account what exactly is the plaintiff's knowledge and understanding. For example, there's a very famous case in Missouri that I think is sort of the poster child for judicial estoppel, where the party making the inconsistent statement, trying to game the system, quote unquote, was a judge. And the court said, hey, now, you (laughs) You of all people should know better. And they contrasted this case with another opinion where judicial estoppel was, they tried to apply it, where the the person, the party that was allegedly making the inconsistent statement was, I think, a housekeeper. And they said, look, something we're going to keep in mind is that these people are at very different understandings of the law and what exactly is an inconsistent statement. So again, timeline is really important. Conversations with your client are really important. And I think that that's also why we emphasize so much now having these conversations early and in-depth with our clients. Yes. Well, thank you all for listening to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I know bankruptcy isn't the most exciting of subjects, but we hope that we provided you a little bit of information today to help you in your practices and in your lives. So join us again every Wednesday for another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. We'll see you then. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and subscribe today 